So there is a, a metaphor that is used in Scripture, both in the Old and the New Testament. And um, it refers to people as vessels of clay. In some versions of the scripture, you will see this metaphor referred to where people are referred to as jars of clay. But throughout the Bible, you see this principle. You see this metaphor used. Isaiah chapters 45 and 64 use it. Jeremiah chapter 18 and Lamentations chapter 4 verse 2 all use that metaphor when referring to people, referring to people as vessels, as jars of clay. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and 2 Timothy chapter 2 are places where you will find people being referred to as jars of clay or clay or earthen vessels. My point is, there is a consistent principle that's used throughout the Bible where people are compared in that way. It says to us that there is a God, the potter. And it says to us that we are created and shaped by God. We are the clay. And as a lump of clay is shaped on a potter's will, the hands of the potter determines the outcome. The hands of the potter creates what it is that he wants to create. And there is a design and a purpose for every single one of those vessels. They all have a design for them and a purpose. And using the metaphor, as the scriptures do, that we are jars of clay indicates something I think that is important. And it's a biblical principle that I want you to hang on to for this particular message. These these vessels that were created were designed to receive and then carry something. So I want you to think about pitchers or vessels, anything you want to, a a vessel of clay, and it is hollow inside, and it's meant to receive something, and it is meant to be used to transport that something, and it is meant to be poured into other things. I want you to see the metaphor that the Lord God is given to us throughout the scriptures that you are designed by God, you are created by God, and his intention is to put something in you that will be carried around and then that you would be able to use that something or pour that something out into someone else or something else. And so I want you to kind of put that metaphor as, if you will, the foundation of this particular message that we are all jars of clay. We are all earthen vessels. And there's a design that God has in mind. He wants to put something in you and he wants you to take it with you. And he wants you to pour out of that vessel and use it for his glory. All of us are designed like that. That's how people are made by the Lord God. So again, hang on to that as we continue in our series that we are calling Airplane Mode. You'll remember, you'll recall that the reason we've called this series Airplane Mode is to illustrate um, intense focus. 
You remember me talking about the, the business travelers in particular who will get on an airplane and they'll, they'll pull out their work and they're not paying attention to anybody. They don't even make eye contact with other people. And they report that they get a lot of work done on an airplane flight because they're able to not be interrupted by their phones. They're not talking to anyone. They are focused. They're looking at this. And so this is a series uh, that we have called Airplane Mode just simply to illustrate focus, to illustrate the idea of really focusing in on the Lord God. And you'll remember that this is a study from a period in the life of a man by the name of Nehemiah. Let me give you the Wikipedia summary of Nehemiah again. It is a book in the Bible. And in chapter 1, we meet a Hebrew cupbearer to King Artaxerxes of Persia. He is, he is a man who was born into exile. In other words, he wasn't born a free person. His country had been subjugated by another country, taken over, and he knew nothing of that. He wasn't alive then. He was born after all of this had happened. And you'll remember in chapter 1 that he learned from his lofty position of leadership, which was entrusted to him as cupbearer to the king, he had learned that the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed and that his countrymen, his relatives, were suffering. They were in despair and they were in disgrace and they were in dire straits. They were living a a, a hard life. When he learns this from his sheltered position, he is so overwhelmed and so overcome that he prayed to the Lord God of Israel. And you'll remember for four months, Nehemiah did nothing other than praying and fasting to God about this thing. Talk about focus. That's what he did for four straight months. Every day he got up and he began to pray to the Lord about the condition. And it was he, you'll remember me saying he had his Popeye moment. That's all I can stands because I can't stands no more. It was too much for him. He was, he had a holy discontent. He said, I can't, I can't live with this. I can't think about the, my, my relatives being like this. I can't think about the walls being destroyed. And so he just began to seek God. And we talked the first week about the power of taking time to do nothing but pray and fast and seek God. And we saw Nehemiah doing that. Last week we saw where he actually, the time came when God gave him a moment. And we talked about how important it is not to meet your moment, or not to miss your moment, I should say. And the work began, and they began to rebuild that wall. But in that moment, it was that moment when Nehemiah was uh, charged as a responsibility of, of being a cupbearer to bear some wine and take the cup to the king. And the king noticed that he was sad. The king noticed that his countenance was different than he had ever seen it before. And he asked uh, Nehemiah, what's wrong? And Nehemiah knew this is my moment. This is where I have to speak up. This is the time where God has brought me to. During his prayer time, he got a clear sense that God wanted him to do something. Now was his moment. He seized this moment. And you'll remember that he began to to lead the effort to build the wall. And when we left off in chapter 3, the Israelites were hard at work rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And we see that happening in chapter 3. And so then begins where we are today, chapter 4. Because it isn't long. In fact, it's day one. When they begin to rebuild the wall, uh, they were beginning to do a good thing, a godly thing, a, a noble thing, a thing that they should be doing. The very moment that started, there were people who began to criticize them. 
big shock, big surprise. And, and sure enough, there were enemies and there were people trying to discourage them. And I want to read about it in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We'll look at those verses first. And um, let me read it to you. You read along. When Sambalot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria. He said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what, a, what they are building, even a fox climbing on, up on it, would break down the, their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all of their heart. Are you able to picture this, paint this picture in your mind as you're thinking about the, the great city of Jerusalem? And I just want to, again, help you understand it. For 150 years, the city had been a pile of rubble. For 150 years, every wall was torn down and, and all that was left was big piles of burned up rubble. Uh, fires had burned up the wood part, the gates and that kind of thing. And the stones had been scorched and the whole city lay in ruins for 150 years. And the Lord moves on Nehemiah, uses Nehemiah. And I just want to remind you before I go any further here that the book of Nehemiah is historical. What I'm saying to you, this isn't a fable. This isn't even a story like in Hollywood where they take some liberties. This is how it happened, to whom it happened, and this is uh, the way that it happened. It, this is the story. This is These are actual historic events that that happened uh, in, in uh, the life of the Israelites. Before coming together to rebuild a massive wall, the builders were already facing hardship. As I said, for 150 years, they had been subjugated. They already were living a rough life. They already were, were, were going through something that was not easy for them. But Nehemiah, God's man, came to them and presented to them a vision that gave them hope. If they could rebuild the walls, they could be a people again. If they could rebuild the walls, they could have life again and freedom again. They would have hope again. These dear people embraced this. And, and as this verse 6 tells us, when they did, they worked with all of their heart to rebuild the walls. And when we finish up in verse 6, in just a matter of a few days, and, and not a few, but 30-some days, the walls were halfway built already, all the way around the city. And we talked about the, the monumental task that they had and yet how God worked in them. Remember the, the metaphor that I just used with you. Jars of clay, right? Not machines, not robots, but clay vessels. The people who did this were exactly that. They were people. Can you imagine them getting tired? Can you imagine the exhaustion that they were beginning to feel? Donald Clifton has written a book, and it's called How Full Is Your Bucket? 
And in his book, Clifton suggests that each of us, he uses a metaphor too, has an invisible bucket. This one is a visible representation of that bucket. But he, he suggests to us that each one of us has our bucket. And our buckets can be emptied or filled according to how others speak to us and according to how others treat us. Sometimes it can be very feel like it's very full. And when it's full, by the way, doesn't life seem to be going well? Okay, when your bucket is full, when things are going pretty well, when when good things are being said to you, you're being treated pretty well. You you have God pouring into you. You can have you can feel pretty good about life. Conversely, when your bucket is empty, life can become bitter. Life can become difficult. Life can become exhausting, and you can begin to look at life with a with a taint or with a view that life isn't so good. If we are jars of clay like buckets, we're intended to be used of God, as I said, to carry his glory and to carry something, the love of Christ and the glory of Christ into other people's lives, to be poured out of and disperse his love and grace. Each of us has a dipper. According to this author, he uses this and he says, we have our buckets and we have our dippers. And what we're supposed to be doing is taking from our buckets and pouring into other people's buckets and to fill into other people's lives. And that is just how God has designed us. He made us to be vessels. He made us as his creations to carry his glory and to share his glory and to receive his glory. So like the cup that runneth over, a full bucket gives us that positive outlook and renewed energy. And every drop that goes into our bucket makes us feel stronger and more optimistic in life. Indulge me, if you will, for just a moment as I make a couple of tough statements here. Many of us have been trying to give out of an empty bucket. And we keep wondering why we feel so tired And why we feel so frustrated. And why life doesn't feel like it's going very well. Some are trying to be there for others and they're giving and they're giving and they're giving. But they have less and less and less to give. Some of us have been trying to give out of an empty bucket for a very long time. And an empty bucket will poison the way that we think and poison our attitudes. It saps our energy and it undermines our resolve and our will. So let me ask you, how are you refilling your bucket? When your bucket begins to get low, what are you doing to get your bucket full again? What do you do to see to it that you're not empty all of the time? There are some of us who who believe that if we just give more, life will get better. But if we have nothing to give out, All we have is emptiness. All we have is that nagging feeling like it's not enough. And we walk around with the feeling that people with empty buckets feel. And we walk around discouraged and disappointed in life. Let me make another difficult statement, a tough statement, if you will. There's another group of people who don't give themselves to others at all. They view it as it's all about me. It's my bucket. It's my water. And what happens um, 
uh, to you is not my concern. I may have something to give out, but I'm not giving anything out. And so there are some people that's all about, I just want my bucket filled. Just fill my bucket. Just give it to me. Me, me, me. Consume, consume, consume. Give, give, give. Me, me. One way. Well, what happens, if I may ask you, what happens if you were to fill, fill a bucket full of water and just let it sit there for, say, six months, never moving that water? Well, it becomes stagnant, doesn't it? It becomes something that's not good. You don't want to consume water that's set, set around in a bucket for six months. You, if you do, you're probably going to get sick from it. It, it has a, a way of becoming stagnant and not useful. Can I just tell you that you're a vessel and you're not meant just to receive and to get your bucket filled with the way this is supposed to work is we're supposed to move it. We're supposed to give out to others and receive again. And that's how that life is supposed to work. That's how God would have us to have it work in our lives. And so the challenge is, how do we do that? How do we live a life that both receives God's grace and God's living water and gives it out? What do we do? How is it that we refresh ourselves? How is it that we refill? What do we do when our bucket becomes empty? We need to think about healthy rhythms where we both pour out the water and we give it to others and we refill it. So here it is. The Israelites began a good work, a much needed work, God's work for sure. And it wasn't long before other people didn't like it and tried to bring an end to it. I just need to come back and visit this very quickly again because I won't beat this up. I've done this the last two two weeks. Church, we should never be surprised when we are doing the work of God and it's exhausting and it's hard. We should never be surprised when we are doing a good thing, a thing that God would have us to do, and it's not just really simple to do. God does not necessarily give us easy buttons, does he? He doesn't do that. I wish he did. I wish he made my life really easy. I wish he made pastoring really, really easy. I would like that. If it was just so simple, if it was just such an easy thing to do, I wish that everything in my life that I tried and I was when I was pouring out, that it was just easy in life. But God didn't make it easy for the Israelites. It was hard work. There was rubble to move. There was a lot of hard work without the uh, advantages of heavy equipment. It would be a daunting task for us today with the equipment, let alone what they did but God doesn't necessarily because we're doing good things because we're doing God's thing he doesn't necessarily make it easy to do and so we shouldn't be surprised and the Israelites really shouldn't have been surprised that there were some people who were going to criticize them and that's what they did listen without a doubt if Satan wants to stop Christians from doing something that God wants them to do one of the things he's going to do is try to bring into your life discouragement he's going to try to get somebody to be a naysayer that'll empty your bucket If he can get people to talk poorly about you and towards you when you're just trying to do a good thing, a godly thing, a noble thing, then Satan will certainly try to orchestrate that because he knows that empties out a bucket. And let me just say this to you as kindly and as lovingly as I can. Please don't be shocked when other people don't all buy into the thing that you're doing, even if it is a good thing. 
Okay? Because that's just part of being in the work of God. I'm just going to tell you that not everything you do or say is going to make everybody think you're the best thing since sliced bread. It doesn't happen that way. Part of, of doing the work of the Lord is to be opposed. And that's just the way it is. And certainly as they are doing the hard work, they are facing words to discourage them. No doubt Satan would count on people getting tired and exhausted in the hard work. So as they're doing this hard physical work, the echoes of taunts from the people who dislike them are filling their ears. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble burned as they are? What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, will break down their wall of stones. That'll drain your bucket. That kind of treatment. Some of us have been here, haven't we? We know what it is like to face criticism. And right in the midst of doing the good work, the needed work, God's work, someone is throwing shade at us. Did I do that right, somebody under 30? That's how you say it, being criticized, throwing? Yeah, thank you. Okay, so it means that will happen to us. And that, in turn, can take away from our focus. What was happening, and you can read a little bit further, and I'm about to read some of this with you, is that that was affecting the people who were doing the work. They were hearing these discouraging things, and they began to look not at the work they were doing. Suddenly, they were turning their eyes to the, to the piles of rubble. They saw all that rubble and all that work, and all the rubble was sitting right where the wall had to be built. They had to move it all just to build it all. It was a difficult task that they were, they were involved in, getting the materials together, all of the things that they were to do. One of the things that I love about this story is while they were being confronted with the taunts of, the, of people who did not like them, they kept on working hard. They worked with all of their hearts according to verse 6. I look at what Nehemiah prayed there about his detractors, and it's pretty obvious he wasn't happy with them when he says, Lord, don't, don't forget this. Don't forget their taunts. Don't forget them criticizing us. Don't, don't cover their sins. Something else was added, though, to the equation. It was more than just taunts. If you look at verses 7 through 12 with me, but when Sambalot, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, their st- the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or they see us, we will be right there among them and kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Whenever, wherever you turn, they will attack us. <coughs> wow, that just got really serious. It's one thing to be taunted and ridiculed and made fun of. It's quite another to have your life threatened. It's quite another to know that any moment you could be attacked and you could have your life taken away while you're doing the good work of God. Just to point out the obvious, these threats had some teeth to it. These people hated the Jews. And these people outnumbered the Jews. 
What I mean is they were made these threats with the intention of carrying them out. And the Israelites all knew it. And you can see that it is affecting them. That drained their bucket. They were reaching a point of emptiness. And they were tired. And it's evident to me that this started to happen. Their buckets began to drain and be empty. And they were becoming discouraging. Discouraged. And again, their focus went from the work to the piles of rubble and to their enemies who were out there saying, we're going, before you know it, when you turn around, we're going to be standing next to you and we're going to, we're going to kill you on the spot. That's what they heard. And so their eyes were taking away from the work and the wall that they were building. And it was placed on the rubble and the enemies that might be hiding there and the enemies that would be uh, waiting to get them. So how did these drug, this, these bucket draining, focus robbing attacks, how were they dealt with by Nehemiah and the Israelites? How in the world did they ever build that wall in 52 days? How does this happen when all of this is going on? How did they refill? How did they refresh their energy? How did they refocus on the work that God gave to them? How was it possible that they were able to to complete the work in 52 days? How did God help them to not give up and walk away defeated and empty? First thing I would suggest to you that they did is they prayed and then they worked. I love that in the middle of it all, hearing the threats, that here's what, what they chose to do. They prayed and they posted a guard. They prayed and they addressed the need and they continued to work, but they prayed. Remember Nehemiah's four-month-long period of praying, doing nothing but praying? It was during that time that he learned some things from God. Listen, God met with him there. So Nehemiah was doing a work he knew without a shadow of a doubt. This is exactly what God wants me to do. God met with me. And he had prayed enough that over and over you'll see this beautiful phrase in the book of Nehemiah. The gracious hand of my God was upon me. He knew without a shadow of a doubt that God was with him. The the hand of God was upon his life. He also knew exactly what God wanted the Israelites to do. He had promises to the Lord that God was going to carry out this task through them. So he clearly knew that prayer was a weapon to be used against the enemy. I don't have to go here for very long, do I? Do we have a clear understanding this morning that prayer still works? That prayer is not just an exercise of futility. It's not just us using words so that we feel better about ourselves. Prayer has power to it. When a righteous person prays, it avails a lot. It it accomplishes big things. So the first thing they did when the threats came was they began to pray and they continued to work. Reminds me a little bit of Acts chapter 4 when the disciples were threatened by the same people who killed Jesus. They were threatened and told to stop preaching about Jesus. They went and they prayed in Acts chapter 4 and God filled the place up with his presence so much that it shook the whole building and the Holy Spirit filled them and what they prayed for is give us boldness to keep working. So these dear people prayed and they continued to work. When the taunts turned into very real threats, they prayed and they kept working. So in that four months of praying, Nehemiah had learned that God was with him. He felt God's presence and he gave him courage 
to move on when these threats came. That said, it wasn't Nehemiah alone doing this work. Not only did he pray, he had a massive team of people praying along with him. I just am going to move out of this story for a second and come to 2018 here in the Gospel Chapel and say to you that this is the last couple, about 13, 14 months, has been a challenging period in our particular church. Person after person has suffered loss, has suffered sickness, has gone through some terrible things, have been struggling, and and our leadership has been attacked, families have been attacked, uh, people have, have gone through an awful lot. And that is why I have called on our church to gather together tonight to call on God. I don't think we should give up. I don't think we should forget that the gracious hand of our God is upon us. Amen. This church came into existence and is what it is today because the gracious hand of our God is upon us. And he has a mission for us to accomplish. And he didn't say it was easy. He didn't say we wouldn't be opposed. But when we are opposed, the thing to do is call on that great big God that we know who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above what we can ask or think. God has been with us and he'll continue to be with us. But it is time for us to seek the Lord and pray and ask for his help. I want you to look at verses 14 and 15 uh, with me because this is what happens here. This is how Nehemiah brings fresh water to these people. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, that meaning the leaders of the Israelites, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. You see, Nehemiah knew that he was looking into the faces of people with empty buckets. And he knew that what he had to do is help them understand, here's how we get our buckets full again. And so I want to kind of examine what he said. I love this because this was such an important thing. When Nehemiah said these things, he said, first, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. I want to remind you again, when we face problems and trials, our God is bigger than those problems and trials that we face. Amen? No matter who it is. So I'm going to say to you the same thing that Nehemiah said to his people. Remember the Lord. Remember he is awesome. Remember he is very great. We need to do that. He also, secondly, said, fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. So in these two points, Nehemiah asked the Israelites really two questions to consider. He doesn't come out and ask them, but they're implied. Question number one, who is your source? Remember, your strength doesn't come from you. Your strength comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Hold out your bucket and let God fill you with his power. Hold out your bucket and go to him. And remember how big he is. Remember how awesome he is. I know that there's piles of rubble. So there's piles of rubble. So there they are. But there's God. There's there's a storm brewing and it's blowing and it's powerful. And it's waves are crashing. But there's God. And there's, there's a giant standing in the valley defying you and telling you you can't do anything. But remind the giant, he's a little speck compared to the God of creation. 
So remember the Lord. That's what we must do. Faith is built. And that will fill our buckets again. And that's what he was trying to help them see. That they needed to remember who their source was. And then the question is, why do you do what you do? Or maybe, who do you do it for? You know, last week we, we, we commemorated Memorial Day. And on Memorial Day, we think about people who lost their lives on other shores and other lands. And one of the things that I think about is what those moments were before they passed away. And let me tell you something. You want to inspire a soldier? You let them think about home. You let them think about their mother and father or their wife and children, and they'll fight until their very last breath. Gave them a reason to do what they were doing. Can I suggest to you that God has called you not just to be about you, but there are people who are desperately lost, and we get to be involved in something that makes an eternal difference in the lives of people. If we will trust God, he will fill us and we'll be able to pour into other people who need to know about the Lord. And it can change the destiny of a person to hell, from hell to heaven. It has that kind of ramifications. You can be involved in bringing people into the kingdom of God if you will but just remember who it is that you are doing what you are doing. Why you are doing this. It is because people need to know the Lord. Because you were blessed one day with somebody who poured into your life and told you about Jesus. And I just remind you, think about your oikos. Think about people in your life who needs Jesus. And that's, that's why you're doing some of the things that you are doing. So, for the sake of souls, would you spend yourself? For the sake of lost people, would you give out of your bucket? And minister to others. Listen, if you think about that, if you have that in your heart, that will fill your bucket. If I can be very transparent with you, I do what I do for two reasons, two main reasons. First and foremost is I love the Lord. I just love Jesus Christ. I love the Creator. I I do it, and I do it for Him because I love Him. I also do it for him because I love people. I want them to know Jesus. I know how beautiful he is. I know how powerful he is. And when I, when I feel like my, I'm running low and I'm empty, I remember why it is that I'm doing this. And I come to the source. My God fills my bucket. And here's something I'm not afraid of. I'm not afraid of God running out and therefore my bucket running uh, empty. As long as I keep going to the Lord, he will fill my bucket and he will enable me to give it out. And again, it's not there just for me. It's out to give out to other people. That's you're a vessel. You're a clay vessel. You're something that was made by God to receive the love of God, to receive the grace of God, to receive the the, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're that vessel that God wants to be designed to hold that. Aren't you so glad that God designed you to hold his love? Wow. God loves you so much that he made a spot in you. Of, and, and you've heard people talk about this, that people have a, a void in their lives. And often for a long time, they try to fill this void with other things. They think they can find it in this or that or in this relationship or in in something else. And this is a void that only God can fill. 
It is his love. It is his gospel. It is his peace. It is only God who can fill that beautiful, that, that big void in our lives. And we'll be empty until he's in there. Because we're vessels. But once he fills us, his intention is, let's go out and let's pour out and show the love of Christ to other people because I can come back and the Lord will fill me with his, his precious love and his power and his spirit today. If you want a life that is counting for something more than just something on the temporary level, something just in this life, if you want a life that will carry God and his love, then you can have it. And you can be one who is pouring into other people's lives and, and, and making a difference that is more than just a day. God has made you in a marvelous way. And you get to... This is why I love what the Bible says, that when a person receives forgiveness from Christ and becomes a child of God... God gives them his spirit. There's a void there. We're vessels. And he fills us with his presence. And so the love of God can come out of imperfect earthen vessels. I want to remind you really quickly. You're still an earthen vessel. So you will get tired. You're still an earthen vessel. So you can still be broken. You're still an earthen vessel, a clay vessel. So things can go wrong for you. But the love of God and the power of God can dwell inside of you. And God can use your life and do spectacular things with it. Let me ask this question. Do you know what it is to have God's love and God's peace poured into you? Have you accepted the free gift of living water that Jesus said, I'll give you water that when you drink this, you won't be thirsty again. Your soul will know you found it. You got it. Do you know what it is to have the love of God and the presence of God in you? And, and do you know him? Second question is, if you do, are you any good with your dipper? Do you, do you take out and give to others? Because it needs to move. This stuff that he puts in you. It needs to be shared. The light has to shine. I don't know what other metaphor to use for you. But it can't just be me, 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 I, 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 consume, consume, consume. Are you any good with your dipper? Are you good at telling others about Jesus? Do you even invite anybody to church? I'm trying to challenge you because you will find that as you do those things, your bucket keeps getting filled. As you serve God out of the love of your heart, your bucket keeps getting filled. And God will let you do the coolest things. God will lead you in the coolest ways. Because you're not stingy. You're trusting. So let me challenge you. We uh, last week started this wall. And several of you, at my request, grabbed one of those rubble rocks Put your name with a Sharpie on it, and you're building this wall up. Somebody somebody kind of hit this wall. I'll try to fix it a little bit. I'll, I'll try to make it nicer. But anyway, you're building this wall. And I, I, I was thrilled to watch so many of you come, and you put your name down and say, you know what, I believe that God has me here as part of this church, and I want to do my part to build the kingdom of God here. I want to help the gospel chapel 
bring people to Jesus. I want This is my church, and I'm going to be part of it. There, there were several of you who said, that's me, and you put your name. And I said, this is going to be here for th- about three weeks. Next week, it should still be here. We can keep it together. <laughs> We're going to try. It should still be here. And next week, if you, up till next week, you, you can build this wall to indicate to the Lord, not me, but indicate to the Lord I'm part of the team that God can count on to build into other people's lives. And I put my name on this block to indicate I'm part of that and I want to be. At any point, you can come up here, grab from the rubble pile, and build this wall. You can do that. That said, is there anyone here today, and this is rhetorical at this point, you, you're empty. There's nothing in here. And maybe you've tried to fill it, and it's full of the wrong stuff. And it's time for you to come to God and let him fill you, because that's what you were designed to do. You were made to carry the presence of the Lord. You were made for his glory. And maybe there's someone here who would say, you know what? I'm tired of being empty or I'm tired of what's in my life. And I just want God to fill me with him. I want to belong to God. I I want to belong to Jesus Christ. I want to put my trust in him. I don't want to feel this way anymore. And maybe I'm speaking to a Christian and uh, let's just be honest. You're stagnant because you don't share with anybody. You're not building. You're not trying. And I just want to tell you, the bitterness you feel in your soul will go away if you will let God refresh you and then just start sharing the love of Christ. Invite somebody. Tell them about the Lord. Tell them about what's happening in your life. Get involved in serving the Lord. It'll make a difference.